A reading from 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today... I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with a shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then they brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute, and he cured him so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out the demons. He knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit. We ask that you would be here now and bless us. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who are your heroes? It's an interesting question. Who are the people who inspire you? Who are the people that you admire and that you want to be like when you grow up, no matter how grown up you may already be in your life? Or like, who are those people whose biographies you want to read? 
in hopes that maybe some of what you perceive as heroic in them might just rub off on you a little bit. I want you to actually stop and think about that for a second until you have a name or two in mind. Who are your heroes? In my polling audience survey, very unscientific one at that, that I've done this week as I've reflected on this question, some of the names that have popped up uh, in response have been names like Warren Buffett, uh, Michelle Obama, John McCain, Steve Jobs, Beyonce, uh, John Wooden, the, leg- the legendary coach, Alexander Hamilton, not the original, the Lin-Manuel Miranda remix that has taken Broadway by storm, the one uh, who is young, scrappy, and hungry, and uh, selling equally scrappy and hungry ticket prices. Um, The top chefs, those culinary artists turned rock stars in the Anthony Bourdain era. Or uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, the fixer-upper couple, you know, Christians love them, that's funny. Uh, AOC, who's still known affectionately by her given name to her family, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who at age 29 became the youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. Um, Megan Rapinoe the resilient, outspoken captain of the U.S. women's soccer team, who I realize her game is on right now. Thank you for being here. Uh, One person even named Jimmy Buffett as a personal hero, a guy who's figured out how to turn his entire life into vacation, basically, right? Um, Who just bums around, does whatever he wants, whether it's playing music, beach bumming, flying his plane, whatever. Heroes come in all kinds of sizes and shapes and styles. And I think it's important for us to reflect on who our heroes are and why. So who are your heroes? And what makes their stories so compelling to you? Is it their raw talent? Is it their wealth or their success? Is it their creative genius? Is it their efficient use of time or their ability to make everyone around them better? Is it their fearless self-expression or their willingness to speak truth to power? Is it their transparency, their courage, their vision, their perseverance? What is it that makes your heroes heroic to you? What is is it that inspires you? The story of David and Goliath is one of the most famous hero stories in the world, right? And one of the main points of this story is that it challenges our idea of what heroism is, of what a hero is. And, it's in, um, and one of the main points uh, of this story, as it does that, is to challenge, like, who are the people that we admire and what are the things that we find inspiring? Because the thing is, you and I, just as, as you thought about your own heroes, right, who are they, you name them and why, you and I are prone to admire giants, aren't we? We love giants. We're in awe of them. We're in fear of them. We're inspired by them. People who are standouts, who stand head and shoulders above the rest of the pack. We're drawn to them. But what we see in this story is that that is not what heroism is about as far as God is concerned. Heroism is about something deeper. It's about something that's far more core to what it means to be fully alive or to be fully human. And even if you've never opened the Bible in your life, 
I bet you know the story of David and Goliath, or at least you've heard about it, right? It's, it's become almost the archetypal underdog story in our culture, right? I remember in the NCAA basketball tournament a couple years ago when the number 16 seed, uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, knocked off the number one seed, University of Virginia. It's like the ultimate David and Goliath story, right? The underdog wins. But is this an underdog story? Our familiarity with the David and Goliath story might lead us to have some assumptions about it that we might need to actually put away if we're to look at what this story really tells us. Because if this is an underdog story, no one seems to have told David. If you read through the script of the story, David in no way is playing the role of underdog. He's not Rudy from the movie, for those of you who are from my generation and know that story. He, that's not, that is not David. He's not an underdog. So let's look at the story with some fresh eyes. What's going on? Well, here's the setting. The Philistines have been Israel's greatest military threat for a long, long time. They're an old enemy. And they're the Israel's desire to defeat the Philistines was one of the main reasons that they wanted a king in the first place. It's why they wanted Saul, who stood head and shoulders above the rest of the pack. And Saul, when he became king, he was victorious early on. He drove the Philistines, he and his army drove the Philistines out of the central highlands uh, so that the people of Israel could begin to populate this area with greater peace and prosperity. But now as we come to chapter 17, the stage is set for a rematch. We're no longer in the central highlands. We've moved to the western foothills of Judah, and these two armies are entrenched on hills, foothills, ridges, looking out at each other with the valley of Elah in between them, separating them. And there's a lot at stake here. Because if the Philistines can take the ridge that Israel is on, they can split the forces in half, and from there forward it would just be, as they say, divide and conquer, right? The Israelites would be very vulnerable if they gave up that ground. So they dig in, but it doesn't look good. The Philistines, entrenched on their ridge, they send a single soldier out into the valley to challenge the Israelites in what is called single combat. It's a tradition in some parts of the ancient world and ancient warfare, a custom where an army would send a single champion to do one-on-one -on -one combat with a single champion from the other side in place of a full-on war that would have full-on bloodshed. Sort of like in Rocky IV, you know, where Rocky fights the, uh, the Russian Ivan Drago, and it feels like the entire outcome of the Cold War hangs on what happens in this boxing ring. You know, it's like the champion versus champion. What's happening between these two is a lot greater than the sum of its parts. Now, there's not a lot of evidence of this actually working in the ancient world. The losing side rarely accepted the defeat of their one champion, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there for this story. That's, this is what's happening in the scene. And so the Philistine champion steps forward, and he's going to challenge Israel, and this guy is enormous, right? He's even bigger than Saul, which is kind of the point. In the Hebrew text, he's like nine feet tall. In the Greek text, he's like six foot nine. Um, hard to say which one's older, which one preserves the more original story, but either way, the point is, he's big, and he's bigger than Saul. He's bigger than everybody else. He's a massive guy, 
and he's decked out in about 125 pounds of armor, and he's carrying massive weapons, right? A, a sword, a javelin, and a spear. Those are big, too. So here's this guy, and he has a shield bearer carrying his equally heavy shield out in front of him. So you're supposed to get this image of an unbeatable guy, right? And it's not only that he's big physically, but he talks big. Goliath has swagger. He comes out, and he's, he, he's taunting the whole army of Israel. He's supremely confident in himself, challenging any one of them to step forward and take him on. And Saul, great King Saul, big King Saul, is terrified. He's paralyzed. He has no idea what to do. Because he's looking at this guy, and he sizes him up, and he's like, I can't take him, and I'm the biggest one we've got. What do we do? So they stay. They camp out. He doesn't do anything. And for 40 days, <laughs> this routine continues. Goliath comes out, and he's like, anybody, fight me. I'm right here. But neither army is willing to leave its own high position to advance on the other, and no champion from Israel is willing to step forward to take on Goliath, and so we're just caught at a kind of stalemate. And that's where David enters this episode of the story. Now last week, if you remember where we left David, uh, he was working for King Saul, right? He had been called as a court musician to work in Saul's court. Saul loved him and made him his armor bearer so that he would be a more permanent employee of his staff. Uh, but this week, that's not where David is. We don't find him there. David is still working in his father's fields most of the time as a shepherd, but he's making these trips periodically to the battle lines to bring supplies, rations to his brothers who are soldiers in Saul's army. Um, and, uh, and at this point, when David arrives, you know, Goliath has been doing this for 40 days, and this is when he first hears Goliath's taunts. Now, the stories don't line up chronologically very well, right? Where we left David last week and where we find him this week, they just don't really line up. And there's a reason for that. It's not that the writers and the editors or idiots, or sloppy, or something like that. It's that this beginning of the David story gives us these three episodes. His anointing, his summoning into Saul's court, and then his defeat of Goliath as like an intro to his character. They're like three vignettes that work on their own. And then all that's going to come together, and where the story moves forward from this point forward is going to be more like a single coherent plot line as we follow the story of David. But that's where we are now. We're, we're still getting to know this King David, who is the king after God's own heart. And we get this story of David and Goliath. So here comes David, right? He's bringing bread and cheese to his brothers, who are soldiers. He's like the water boy for, the, for his brothers in the army at this point. And Goliath has been doing this thing for 40 days, taunting everybody. And when David finally hears it, he is appalled. David hears it. Everybody else is terrified. David's appalled. He's like, how dare this guy? slander the living God. Who in the world does this guy think he is? Is there not a God in Israel? And he raises this question that maybe like nobody else is really asking. But David asks the more important question and calls us as readers to ask it as well. And then he starts to ask the question like, hey, what would happen if I step forward to fight this guy? Like, what's in it for me? And, like, what would happen here? And all this stuff. And, and he's met with utter contempt among the rest of the soldiers who hear him talking like this. But news of David's talk gets back to Saul, and so Saul invites him in. And David finds himself in this face-to-face -face with the king. And he says to the king, let no one's heart 
fail because of Goliath. I will fight him. And of course, Saul begins by saying, like, that's ridiculous. You can't fight him. You're a boy. He's the best warrior they have. You're a boy. This isn't going to work. But David's like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a shepherd. I've fought off lions. I have fought off bears. They're just as scary as this guy. God delivered me then. Why wouldn't he deliver me then? now? For David, this is a pretty matter-of-fact thing. And so, you know, when David finally invokes God's name and all this, Saul gives the okay and begins to outfit David with his own armor, the armor that fits a king whose head and shoulders above everybody else, who goes into this kind of conventional warfare. But David's like, no. He puts it on. He can't even move. He's like, that's not, that's not what I'm going to do. And so he takes off the armor. He has something completely different in mind. All anyone can imagine at this point in the story is a kind of conflict where two heavily armored warriors get right up in each other's faces and hammer it out in hand-to-hand combat. That is all anyone can imagine. That's all Goliath can imagine. That's all Saul can imagine. That's all the watching crowd can imagine. But David isn't even going to try to do that. He's not an idiot. He would lose that fight. It's not like David has just some sort of blind faith where it's like, God will enable me to do whatever. David knows what he can do, and he knows what he can't do, and he also recognizes that God has put him there for a reason in this opportunity, and so he's not going to fight the giant. He's going to shoot him, and he's good at shooting. Like, he, li- he knows what he can do. Of course, if you're watching this fight, you have these kind of expectations of how these things go, right? You're looking at David uh, and, you know, and, and you're seeing, like, the underdog of underdogs. And so, like, you're watching the story, and King Saul is watching the story, and the Vegas odds makers are watching the story, and they're all like, no chance, right? This is not going to go well. Because everyone is looking at what's about to happen through this tunnel vision of a tiny imagination that is dominated by giants and a taken-for-granted world, but not David's. David's imagination is not dominated by the giant. David's imagination is not dominated by the conventions of warfare of the day. He sees what no one else sees. He sees what the odds makers wouldn't see, what Saul can't see, what no one else around him sees, and that is that this, God is present and active in their midst, and David has a particular set of skills that will be very useful for this occasion. And David, trusting God, acts according to the skills that he has through his experience as a shepherd, to deliver God's people. David has no intention of fighting this giant. He's going to shoot him. And so he goes out, and he takes his staff in his hand, presumably as like a decoy, to to distract the giant from the sling that he's got here that he's really going to use. And he walks out. Imagine the scene. Armies on both ridges, a valley in between, a creek running down the middle of the valley. David walks out with no armor, with just like a stick in his hand, And just goes to the creek and crouches down. He kneels and begins to pick up rocks. Armies everywhere. War in the air. Everybody's armed to the teeth. Everybody's ready to kill. David's in the middle of it all. Like crouched down picking up rocks. Incredibly vulnerable position to be in. But again, he sees what no one else sees. There's David on his knees in the presence of giants. So he picks up stones, and he's selecting them. And he walks out, 
and he's going to use these things. So Malcolm Gladwell has this really interesting little, he has a book, he, has a, he also has a TED talk about the David and Goliath story. And he, he notes that the stones that, run through, that are there in the creek beds of that place are like, they're made of barium sulfate, which is twice as dense as regular stones. And a sling of that kind could fire a stone like that at about 35 meters per second, um, which when you combine that kind of stone with that kind of velocity, it's really about the same as like a 45 millimeter pistol. It's like David is not unarmed. <laughs> you know, David is actually armed better than everyone else, and he knows it. Sharpshooting slingers at that day could fire and hit targets that were 200 yards away, the ones who were good. David is nowhere near that far from Goliath. So David knows he's armed. But Goliath is just like offended, right? David steps forward and he's like, what in the world? You're sending me a boy with sticks? He's like appalled at the audacity of the people to send forward just a champion that's so lame. And then David speaks. And as he speaks, he bears witness to the reality that there is a God in Israel. That this God has made a promise that this God is actually doing something in their midst and that the battle belongs to him. And that because Goliath has taken up arms against God's people, that God is going to deliver Goliath into his hand right then. And then without fanfare, David just does it, just shoots him. He walks over, picks up his sword, cuts off his head, game over. And that's the story of David and Goliath the hero who emerges as the deliverer of Israel, the champion who slays the giant. Eugene Peterson, in his reflection on this passage, says that the difference between David and everyone else is the difference between someone who has a God-dominated imagination when everyone else has a giant-dominated imagination. That that's the difference And this story shows us that heroism begins with simply being awake to the presence and power of God in our midst and recognizing that the giants in our world aren't just there. It's not just us and them, but it's us and them and the God who is with us, the God who is working all things according to his great promise. David is the only one in the story who is awake to the presence and the power of the living God. And David's heroism is this combination of faith and skill and imagination. He acts in the moment according to who he is, according to how God has gifted and formed him and called him, and according to his trust in God's presence and his power. And and he shows us what kind of hero God finds heroic. And I think it's different than many of the heroes that you and I find heroic. And that's the point. Who are your heroes? Are they the ones who stand head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd, like Saul or like Goliath? Or are they the ones who begin with an imagination that's founded upon the presence of the God who is near? the God who is here? Are they the ones who operate in the world out of a God-dominated imagination in the presence of giants? Hero stories are meant to do two things. One, they're meant to stoke our affection and appreciation for the hero. So we're supposed to 
love David because of this story. We're supposed to admire him. We're supposed to be inspired by him. But secondly, what, what hero stories do is they inspire us to become heroic ourselves. They inspire us to live differently, out of courage, out of faith, out of wisdom, whatever it is. And what we see in this story is that David is the hero. He becomes the champion who delivers God's people because he's the one who's willing to operate in the world out of a God-dominated imagination and trust. He's willing to use his skills toward God's purposes and trust God with the results. That's what makes him heroic. And then, of course, when we read the story forward to Jesus, and we see Jesus as the greater David, right, who, who slays the greater giant, if you will, who defeats the great enemy of sin and death that plagues all of God's people, all of the world, all of God's creation, Jesus defeats the great giant and becomes the great champion. He's the one who shows us even more clearly what heroism really looks like. And Jesus does it once again, like David, with an unexpected tactic, you might say. Whereas David showed up at a sword fight with a sling, Jesus shows up at a war with love. Jesus' instrument is a nonviolent one, at least as far as what comes out of him. Jesus is the one who takes it to himself. The cross of Christ becoming the instrument of death for him that would become the instrument of life by which he becomes the champion for his people. And what Jesus shows us is that to be heroic in that way, to be the one after God's own heart, is to live in the world with such a God-dominated imagination that you live with this turn-the-other-cheek, love-your-enemy kind of dynamic. And that in so doing, we become part of God's great mission to bring life and peace and restoration to the world. Jesus, the, great, the greater David, the greater champion. And so for us, as we begin to think about this, who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? And what are your giants? And what does God have to do with either one of them? Do your heroes look like Jesus? Are your heroes people who are inspiring you because they're operating out of such a God-dominated imagination that they extend love into the world instead of violence, that they extend forgiveness into the world instead of hate or retribution, they extend peace into the world instead of strife? Are they the people who make visible in the here and now that future world that God has promised the God who's making all things new. Are those your heroes? And then what are your giants? As you think about the giants in your own life, the things that stand between you and the fullness of life, what are they? What are your giants? Is it depression? Is it addiction? Is it financial strain or crippling debt? Is it poor health, a prolonged sickness perhaps, or ruptured relationship? Is it your loss or your lack of a particular relationship? Maybe a spouse or a child or a friend or a family member, someone you've always longed for or someone you've loved and lost? Is it unhealed pain or trauma in your life or is it the secrets that you live with that no one knows and you don't know how to come out of your hiding? 
Is it the unjust systems and structures of our world that perpetuate injustice? Is it your own self-doubt or your own paralyzing self-criticism or your aging body or your slowing mind or your stuck or your dwindling career or your own lack of motivation or your own doubt? What are your giants? How big are they to you? Are they the biggest thing in the room? Or is there a God in Israel? Is there a God in our midst? David shows us a kind of heroism that begins not with the giant, but with the God who leads us to relate to them in profoundly different ways. To not be crushed by them, to not be brought to despair by them, to not succumb to them, but to move forward in faith and love in the victory of Christ himself over all the great enemies, to live with freedom and power and agency in a world that really is filled with giants, in a world that's always tempting us to fall back on the, on the taken-for-granted ways of managing them or coping with them, and the heroes who stand head and shoulders above the rest of the pack, it seems, in taming those giants. But what Jesus calls us into is a totally different way of living in the world, a way that begins by waking up to the presence and the power of the God who has given us the champion, Jesus, who has died, who has been raised, who will come again, and who attends to your life today, your life with all of your skills and your experiences, all of your gifts, all of your opportunities, the things that are before you that God is calling you to walk into in in fellowship with him today, that God is here. He's with you. And he's calling you, like Jesus, to become heroic heroic the way he would define it, heroic out of a God-dominated imagination. What would it look like this week for you to become a hero just a little bit more as you entrust your life to the God who is there? Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that you are near, that you are powerful, You are merciful and trustworthy and kind. God, we ask that you would even now, by your spirit, pull back the curtain and allow us to glimpse the reality that we so often miss. The sacredness of this space and every space we inhabit. The sacredness of the conversations in which we find ourselves. The sacredness of the work that we do. The sacredness of our silence of our thought life, of our words. God, would you give us grace to move forward in trust and in faith, and would you give us grace that we may imagine our circumstances differently because we trust that you're here. And would you help us by your spirit to move forward in the world in faith and hope and love like Jesus, like David, who saw what the others could not see and became heroes after your own heart. Would you do that work in us, among us, and through us, we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.